every single time you hit the start button, you pull the start trigger, you do whatever you're going to do, and you, you get the motor running and you take off, you have the same chance of a catastrophic accident every single time. And there's not very many professions where that's true, other than maybe firefighters and, and of course, policemen, you know, first responders. Um, so you have to be prepared for it all the time. Because again, it doesn't happen very often, uh, but when it does, it's fast and it's generally catastrophic. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 64. Welcome back from wherever you are in the world. As you kick back for the next hour and a little bit, know that you're being joined by aircrew and helicopter industry people all over the world who are just like you, are keen to learn more about the industry and that are working at becoming better, safer, and more professional every day. Today's guest has almost four decades of helicopter flying experience covering everything from aerial scout ops, Apache deep strike missions in Iraq, special operations support, hundreds of hours flying the MI-17 in Afghanistan, and experience with deep water search and rescue operations. The big goal today, though, is to, to scare you enough that you go and check the clothing that you fly in and reassess if you could better protect yourself from an aircraft fire. Skip Tackett is the president of Utility Aviation Incorporated, a subsidiary of Brunner Aerospace. Skip's civil aviation qualifications include FAA ratings as a Rotary Wing Airline Transport Pilot and Rotary Wing Certified Flight Instructor Instrument, as well as a Fixed Wing Commercial Single Engine and Multi Engine Instrument Pilot with type ratings in the Russian MI-8-17 and the AW-139. In the military, Skip was a AH-64 Apache pilot that fought in a desert storm and was the master gunner that developed the first digital gunnery program for the US Army, and was a senior standardization instructor for the AH-64 Delta, the Longbow Apache, as well as a master trainer for seven different foreign militaries. Skip has been a deep water search and rescue IFR MBG captain in the Gulf of Mexico. Then something very unique for any Apache pilot especially, Skip has flown Russian MI-17s in combat, as the chief pilot for Northrop Grumman on a special operations counter-narco-terrorism program in Afghanistan. He's also involved in a, a bunch of other stuff too, which you'll get to hear about. Now, the reason for Skip being on today is that he and his co-pilot were inside an Apache, a gunship that turned into a, a fireball during a hot refueling that went wrong. The story of the fire and Skip's almost three-year recovery to get back to flying isn't exactly a, a nice bedtime story. It's one that Skip has been sharing with aircrew for the last 20 years to make you think twice about what you wear in the cockpit and to remind us all to keep our guard up and guard against complacency. Boyd Tackett, thank you very much for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. And uh, I've had a quick look online and it seems to be Boyd and, and Skip just seems to be a, 
a nickname that goes with that uh, that first name. But did you get a skip from you know a particular story, or is that just a an associated nickname for for Boyd? No, my uh, my dad's nickname was Skip, and then when I was born, I was Little Skip, and then I dropped the little as I got bigger, so I just <laughs> became Skip. That's awesome. And we, just before we hit record, we said you got a you know Skip put a few different hats on, but. Uh, you're working there with Brenner Aerospace, and when you look on the website and have a look at the staff there, I, I kind of joked with uh, the marketing manager there when I got your details and said that it's a bit like the A Team uh, TV show when you read the uh, the who's who of, of who uh, who's working there. Well, we like to say we just have a, a pretty good group with interesting backgrounds, <laughs> which is which is a very big understatement. It's like the uh, you know break glass in, in case of war uh, type uh, setup there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of um, interesting how all of us kind of fell together, more or less. It wasn't any big plan on anything. And yet when you look at all of us, we have a lot of similarities, specifically, you know, flying special operations or special operations on the ground. And then a lot of differences in a lot of different areas. Everything from um, me being an Apache driver to... Uh, Chris and John both flying combat search and rescue for the Air Force, and then John going on to fly U2s, and it's uh, it's a pretty eclectic group of guys, and it's it's a lot of fun to work with other professionals of that caliber. So you guys obviously didn't know each other when you served, then you all met once you you left the forces. Yes, yes, we all met. Well, actually, John and Chris flew together in the Air Force, uh, and that's where they met. And John and I, interestingly flew in Afghanistan, but not together. I was, I was flying Russian MI-17s and he was flying ISR birds overhead. And we ended up on several missions together, unbeknownst to us until much later when we started putting two and two together. (laughs) So it's, uh, it's interesting how the paths have crossed. Yeah. Well, definitely. We'll be talking about uh, MI-17s later on, but let's start with the Apaches. When was the, the first time skip that you ever actually saw an Apache and what were your initial impressions? Well, I, uh, I have to go all the way back to when I started flight school in 1982 and uh, graduated in early 83. And at the time, the Cobra was the uh, attack helicopter of the U.S. Army as far as the premier bird. And so when I graduated from flight school, I was actually flying OH-58s, which is the, uh, the civilian Bell Jet Rangers, the equivalent of that, the Alphas and Charlies that we were flying in the military. And I was assigned to a an attack helicopter unit as an aero scout. So I worked with the Cobras all the time. And in fact, uh, it was a single pilot aircraft. So the very first pair of rockets I ever fired in my life was from the front seat of a Cobra as a scout pilot, because they just wanted to take us out and let us see a little bit about what they did. And then in 1985, late 85, the army started fielding the Apache. And uh, I couldn't get into it initially because I was a scout guy, not a Cobra guy. And the only aircraft that they used to transition from a Cobra into an Apache was another Cobra that had a special modification to teach guys how to fly the pilot night vision system. And so I was in one of the very first classes after they stopped doing that to allow other pilots to come into it. And I got into it late summer of 87. I guess the first time I ever actually saw one was at Fort Rucker uh, when I showed up for the course. Of course, I had seen pictures of it, and I had a lot of friends that were flying them, and I'd been studying the operator's manual stuff before then, but it was quite a machine. Uh, I, I distinctly remember walking up to it and, and thinking, 
okay, I have found the, the bird that I want to fly for the rest of my life. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing aircraft. Yeah, so I don't think I've seen one in the flesh. I've seen, you know, seen photos and videos, but uh, I, I, you know, I think they probably have been out here for an air show or two in Australia. But yeah, I haven't actually seen one up close or in the flesh. But yeah, in terms of machines, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously up there in terms of uh, firepower. Well, I've told my wife I have one mistress, and it's called the Apache. Um, so it is, um, it is unlike anything else I think you can fly. And I've flown in just about everything at some point. And I, I put the Apache up on a very high pedestal. Not only was it an amazing machine to fly, the firepower was unmatched. And when we fought them in Desert Storm, there was a lot of sense of invincibility because there was no target, whether it was a, a fighter, a tank, uh, anything on the ground, uh, surface air missile, there was no target that we could not take out with our onboard weapon system. We didn't have to go back and pick up a special rocket or a special missile or something like that. We could just lay waste with everything that we carried with us all the time. And it was, uh, it, I mean, it's the best roller coaster you're ever going to ride because it's fully aerobatic. And it's, uh, even though it's a very heavy aircraft, uh, combat weight on the A model, I think, was around 18,000 pounds. And I think on the D models now, they're up around 20. Still very, very agile. You know, it can literally swap its head for its tail in an instant. And that's uh, a lot of fighter pilots that have gone up against us have found out the hard way that we're a very, very tough adversary. And what's the training progression go? Do you go in as a pilot or a gunner first? Uh, is there a set sort of training stream? Well, both pilots in the aircraft are pilots. Uh, there's not, it's not like an aircraft uh, with the Navy or the Marine Corps, even some of the Air Force, where you have a Rio or a Wizzo or someone that's, that's not an actual pilot that handles all the radar and the weapons. Both, both pilots are actually pilots, and that's the way you're trained. So either, either pilot can fire all weapon systems from either cockpit. Now, there are certain uh, better cockpits to shoot from. In, in other words, if you're sitting in the front seat and you have the target acquisition designation system or the TADS, then obviously you have much better optics than I have in the back if I'm just looking through my HDU. So generally speaking, the person in the back will have the 30 millimeter for close-in protection and some pretty long-range shots. I mean, we get first-round hits at two miles with this thing. And then um, the front seater will take the, the missiles and or the rockets, and the back seat will usually alternate between the 30 millimeter and the rockets. And then if you happen to have sidewinders on the wing tips, Generally, it's the back seat that's going to fly him because he's he's the guy maneuvering the aircraft uh, to get in position for the shot. So it's a, it's a pretty good workload, but both both pilots are very very busy all the time. In terms of flying it as an actual helicopter and disregarding you know the, the systems that, that go with it, does it have any particular characteristics? Like you jump from a you know a Black Hawk into it or a you know two hundred six. Like what what's some, does it have really noticeable characteristics? You obviously said it's really maneuverable. But uh, is it well, particular uh, emergencies it, that are unique to it? Well, it's it's a very easy aircraft to fly, and they built it that way on purpose because when you're in the attack helicopter business, flying it all has to be second nature. You really don't have a lot of time to think about that because you're focusing on the weapon systems and target acquisition and evasive maneuvers if someone's firing back at you and so on. And then when we fielded the D model in um, 98, 99 timeframe, uh, now we've added the fire control radar, the radar frequency interferometer, the glass cockpits, the complete integration of everything. And it has just been more and more and more. So they've added more autonomous stuff uh, as far as the flight control system 
not necessarily an autopilot per se, but a lot of aids to help you so that you can you can break your your focus into multiple little chunks and handle a lot of different tasks at one time. So um, it's it's actually a very, very nice aircraft to fly, probably one of the nicest ones I've ever flown. The AW-139, uh, the Augusta Wesson 139 that I flew when I did deep water search and rescue is another one, a very, very good stable platform. The aircraft was built for the pilot and allowed the pilot to do other things besides just focus on the flying of the of the machine. Yeah, and that type has just been rolled out everywhere. <laughs> They're definitely, uh, it's a, a good sales machine at the moment. It's uh, lots of organizations picking up the 139. That's oh, a great aircraft. It has the same same horsepower engines as the Apache with a 15,000-pound max gross weight versus a 23,000-pound max gross weight. It's the only aircraft I've ever flown that you could lose an engine on takeoff at max gross weight and continue to climb out. Dead set. Wow. And that's uh, yeah. and back to the Apache. And again, you know, from computer simulations and uh, like case studies where you see the, the gun footage with the radio calls and, you know, people talking about what's happening as actually uh, using the, the FLIR and things like that. You do get that impression that, you know, there's so many systems in the machine to be to using as, as combat systems that the flying has to be you know, a very, very base skill in terms of all your attention is on the actual uh, combat and, and using it as a, as a combat system. Yeah, that's, that's an accurate uh, description. I mean, when you go to the Apache course, I, I think under the Flight School 21 concept, and, and they may have changed the name on it again, but they're, they're taking people right, right from the beginning in flight school and putting them into those machines now. When I went through, you had to have been a pilot flying something else for a number of years before they'd let you get into it. And the reason was initially because we didn't have anything equivalent and they needed you to have a very good base set of pilot skills to, uh, to transition into it and, and literally field a brand new weapon system for the military. And now that we've got, you know, 20 plus years behind us in, in fielding and fighting the machine, 30 years, I guess, gosh, we've learned a lot about how to better train pilots to come in uh, from the, from the beginning and do it. And uh, you hear a lot about, the younger generation, you know, growing up on Nintendo and Xbox and those kinds of things. And that's, that's true to a degree. Although some of the best pilots I've ever seen were the older pilots. And I think uh, one of the things I really, really like about the Apache from that perspective is it's um, it kind of weeds out its own. You can either do it or you can't. And there's really no predisposition based on something that you've done before, or maybe a skill set that you've had either with another aircraft or, you know, you're really good at video games. It's just, you have to learn to manage the entire environment. And that's what the army well, and, the, and, you know, the other countries that have them now spend a lot of time training their air crews to do. What did you guys and obviously you and, and the uh, air crew there think about the, the Apache movie that came out with Nicolas Cage? Uh, and I mean, that's, that's a pretty old movie now. Uh, but all I remember, there's one section there where he's driving around with the, uh, something taped with his eye, like uh, uh, toilet rolls or something or other to get used to the, the head sight. But uh, what were the thoughts in the unit when that movie came out? Uh, can we flush this down the toilet? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it was a terrible movie. I mean, what, what they were trying to do was capitalize on the success of Top Gun. And while the cast in and of itself, I like the Tommy Lee Jones character, and I think he did a pretty good job. Nicolas Cage was terrible. I can't remember the gal's name that was the scout pilot in there. Anyway, they, they really overhyped it and it really put a bad taste in all the Apache pilots mouths at the time. 
And uh, I've even gone back and watched it, you know, years later, and it's still just as bad as it was before. However, having said that, coming back to your point, flying the FLIR uh, was one of those things that I liked about the aircraft because it didn't matter how many hours of goggles you had. It didn't matter how much time you had in Cobras. You could either fly the PNVS or you couldn't. And it had to do with eye dominance and learning to switch on one eye and switch off the other and, and uh, learning to literally fly in some really, really bad weather, at, you know, and, and really uh, dark nights with a three-quarter inch by three-quarter inch TV screen in front of one eyeball and still be able to look inside the cockpit and monitor the instruments and stuff. And it was, it was a, a big discriminator. It didn't matter if you were brand new or an old guy you either could or couldn't. And the guys that couldn't or the gals now um, never made it to the aircraft. It just, you, that was, that was an integral part of being able to fly that aircraft. And if you could not fly PNBS, you could not be an Apache pilot. Yeah, for sure. The Australian guys, we've just recently sort of experienced something similar with the uh, NH-90. Uh, again, the FLIR is mounted right on the front of the helicopter. And when it's pushed through the, the, uh, the helmets, it's a different viewpoint from your seat to where you're actually looking through. So imagine well, we had, a similar setup for you guys. Yeah, yeah. One of the um, one of the interesting things we had to come overcome was was the parallax effect. So if you think of the PNBS on the nose of the aircraft, or in the case of the NHI a ninety, it's on the nose. When you look to the right, your right eyeball is actually on the nose of the aircraft in the left position. And your left eyeball is now to the right of that. So there was a parallax effect because a lot of times you could actually see out the cockpit with your left eye uh, just as well, depending on a, the ambient light and stuff. If you look to the left, now everything was back to where it should be. And, um, and that was a hard thing for, for a lot of folks to overcome. And some people never could. Uh, it was, you know, just, it, again, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't say any specific ability that that those of us that made it had versus those that didn't something about the way the brain is wired and just some people they just couldn't make sense of it and so they never they never um, flew the apache for very long yeah skip a master gunner uh what's the what's the significance of, of the title master gunner well it's interesting the, the term master gunner originated in the tank community it goes all the way back to whenever tanks were invented. And shortly after that, they, they started inventing guys called master gunners. We adopted that in the Apache world, probably, probably in the late eighties, early nineties. And it was a term to, to help the other branches of the service, specifically in the army, kind of understand what we did in the attack helicopter world. And if you've got a Bradley gun, a master gunner, and you've got a, an Abrams master gunner, and then you have an Apache master gunner. Well, they, they could all kind of talk the same language. And so it was, um, it was brought over to us from the, from the ground community. It worked very well. And uh, I really, really enjoyed my time as a master gunner. Uh, I got to, you know, devise ranges and we, we got to set up some really cool scenarios. And, and it was interesting. And there was a lot of times, even, uh, even in Germany at Grafenbeer and Wildflicken, that we would literally hover next to a, an M1 tank or a Bradley and go through drills where they would fire and we would fire. And, and it was a very interesting uh, setup on how to, how to team uh, very, very devastating weapon systems and, and capitalize on the strengths of them and, and let the other one overcome the particular weaknesses of, of the other one. So it was, uh, it was a good thing. I think it was a very good thing that the military did that. 
So it's essentially a qualification then or it's something you're awarded at a certain point? Like, a, Do you do a training course to become a master gunner or it's a, a recognition? No, so at, at least in the U.S. Army, and I don't know about the other serv- or the other militaries that are using them, although I've trained quite a few of them, the, the master gunner is is almost a, um, a, a specific qualification. So you have instructor pilots, you have safety officers, you have tac ops guys, and generally the instructor pilots are going to also be your master gunners. Now, not everyone that is an instructor pilot is a master gunner. Generally, it's going to be your stronger instructors that have the ability to go in and, and really get down into the technical side of all the weapon systems and the sites, fire control radar, radio frequency interferometers, how all that stuff merges and meshes so that you can help the other pilots understand it. You can help the tactics. You can help the strategy and employment of the of the weapon system. And you can devise the uh, the, the new range training for the for the pilots to help them cope with the way that the enemy is just changing. And uh, and I think it's it's been a really, really good position for the for the US Army. Okay. And I guess that leads into there's a little bit here in your uh, bio that talks about the first digital gunnery program. So are we talking you know software or are we talking a, a training program or what's what did that actually you know entail or look like? Well since I was one of the fielding instructors for the longbow uh, I actually went out to the factory in 97. We were in what was called initial key personnel training group number one, IKPT one. And it was a very, very senior group of us that were a model guys that went out and started learning how to, how to um, figure out how we're going to feel this new system with these new, these new sites and these new sensors and the radars and things that we had. And I happened to be an, a, an a model master gunner at the time. So I just naturally kind of fell into the master gunner position on the longbow. And then once we started fielding the aircraft, the the um, capability of, of one Apache to talk to another Apache digitally, we had no way to replicate that on the gunnery range. And so I started working with a couple of companies that were on the very, very front edge of that system development and basically put together uh, an AFAPD card. And I don't even remember what that stands for anymore. It's been so long, but it was uh, the type of language that the Apache talks digitally, plugged it into a laptop computer, and then worked with a company to develop software that I could send the Apache a target handover as if it were coming from another Apache, but I was actually sitting at a laptop in the tower. Sure. Yep. And so I built an entire gunnery uh, scenario using this. And then the interesting part of the development was that after after a couple of years, I started looking at it and, and we were training a um, essentially a counterinsurgency type of training for Apaches. And we started bringing in uh, special operations, terminal air controllers, JTACs, SOTACs, uh, Ford air controllers, and so on, and teaching them to work with the Apache because nobody really ever had a lot of experience with it. And so one of the outgrowths of that was how can I get the F-16 community to talk with an Apache digitally because they use Link 16 in a different uh, digital language than we did. And so once again, I took this laptop that I had and I started working with the folks and, and we actually were one of the, probably the very first one that ever did this, but the Dutch program that I was working on, they had F-16s and they had Apaches. And so we were, we were building this to give them a capability to take with them to Afghanistan in the very early days after 9-11. And we actually did it. I took and an Apache would, would laser target and store it, 
send it to me on the laptop. I had a program that would automatically convert it to the Air Force protocol, send it up to the F-16 mission computer. He would lock it in and he could drop a bomb on it. And uh, it was a lot of trial and error and a lot of um, a lot of late nights banging on stuff. But we got it to work and it worked very well. And the Dutch actually used it in combat in Afghanistan between their Apaches and their F-16s. Wow, okay. I can yeah, see all kinds of uses for that. Yeah, yeah, it was a very good capability. And with the longbow, and again, you know, coming at this very, very new, but from the outside, it looks like the, the biggest difference is obviously the radar dome on top of the rotor head. Uh, are all Apaches now longbow Apaches, or do you fly a mix between a, a flight that goes out? Well, not every – well, let me, so let me, let me start. All, there are no more A models anymore. All the A models in the world have been converted to D models or the longbow. The longbow designation is the A-64D. Now, within that, some of them have the fire control radar and the radar frequency interferometer set, which is the dome that sits up on top of the rotor system. The aircraft itself is no different between the one with the radar and the one without. It's just an additional sight and capability that goes with it. Now, on the Echo model, you've got additional things that they've added on, such as, uh, you know, fly-by-wire, um, some integration with the what we used to call the MUM, the man unmanned teaming, and the um, ability to take direct feeds from the UAVs now, the Preds and some of the other ones that are out there, directly into the cockpit. And, and do some pretty amazing things in combat. One of the things that I was involved with back in 2005 was a, uh, a program called the Hunter Standoff Killer Team. And we took a Blackhawk that was specially modified. We took an Apache that was specially modified and a Hunter UAV and did a lot of testing for about 60 days and uh, essentially wrote the manual on how the Army was going to integrate that particular capability. And it was, it was a very interesting program. This was in, I think, 2005. And we had it to where the only thing that we didn't do from the Apache was launch and recover the UAV. As soon as they launched it, we took control. We would control the flight path. We controlled the payload. We would uh, be able to see the, the image directly in the front seat of the Apache. We could laser store targets, hand it over to either the Blackhawk or to other Apaches. There was a whole litany of of different kinds of software that was very, very cutting edge. And um, that has translated now, all these years later, into a very, very robust capability where that stuff is just piped directly into the Apache. And the crews and the commanders and everybody can make decisions on tactical integration uh, in real time. There's no there's no delay. There's no middleman. It's almost just like a flying command post then with all that extra gear. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah, but it takes a pretty pretty highly specialized crew um that's not the correct terminology a very experienced crew to be able to handle all that and not diminish the capabilities of the basic attack helicopter that they're flying it's easy to fly around at ten thousand feet and just do one thing yeah but if you're still going to be down you know down in the in the terrain providing closer support to the folks on the ground and doing the things that you're there for to begin with and still integrate all of this other stuff it's not an easy task, and, and you get very overwhelmed if you're not careful. So a lot of training goes into that now, even more than we used to do um, back when I was flying. I'll skip this. So many questions on, on that and even Iraq, <laughs> but we better, I guess, get to the, the main parts we want to talk to. But quickly, just before we leave the actual Apache as an air, aircraft itself, is there anything you have to do differently once you put that dome on the top? Is there any different restrictions then on how you fly it, or it's just basically full full flight? envelope the same with the dome on. Nope, there's there's no restrictions whatsoever. 
Um, as far as the radar itself, when they built it, you know, when you exceed a certain bank angle, there's protections in there so that you're not banging the uh, the radar dome and, and things like that. Some of that stuff is is still classified. I really don't want to talk about it. But as far as the actual handling of the aircraft, you don't fly it any differently. There you go. All right. Now, again, your bio talks about two incidents. So uh, we'll, we'll hitch up for the second one later because I'm not sure what that one is. But the, the major incident you had, especially with the Apaches there, was the fire that you were involved in. So if we could, I know you've probably told this many, many times, but yeah, if we could walk through that experience and and again, all the important things that, that came out of that in terms of the investigation, but then uh, your message about uh, fire protection, if we can cover that. Sure. So this happened in April of 1994, uh, April 13th. And um, at the time I was back here in the States, I had, uh, I had just rotated back from Germany we were coming off a very good success uh, with the Apaches and Desert Storm. And, um, you know, I was a CW3, Chief Warrant Officer 3. I was an instructor pilot. You know, I had a lot of combat experience, killed a lot of tanks in Iraq and so on. And the unit that I was assigned to was B Company, 1st to the 502nd from the 2nd Armored Division. And they had just undergone what's called what was called a BRAC move, uh, base realignment and closure. And they had originally been the 1st to the 501st at... Fort Polk, Louisiana, I think, first of 504, something like that. Anyway, they came to Fort Hood, reconstituted under 2nd Armored Division, and the unit was not in the best shape at that time. Because of the BRAC move, they had lost a lot of people, a lot of shuffling of, of personnel, and so on and so on. And so we were, at the time, very immersed in getting things back to a good fighting unit. So and me in particular, in, in Bravo Company, I was putting these guys through a very, very heavy uh, training period. We were doing everything, everything from air-to-air combat, uh, all kinds of drills and so on. And so we had gone to the field up at a, a National Guard training facility, which is about 70 miles to the northwest of Fort Hood, called Brownwood. And it's uh, just a chunk of terrain that we have access to. It, it gives us a little bit better capability to go out and, and execute missions. The, the population up there is a little more sparse than it is around the Fort Hood area. So we can get out and give the, the local farmers and ranchers a break from, from all the Apache flying over all hours of the night and so on. And so we were out there and we were practicing some of the standard Apache type missions. One of them is the deep attack. And that's actually a mission that I flew for. Uh, my unit was the first one that ever flew it in the history of the army in desert storm. And we went about 50 kilometers behind the enemy lines and just laid waste to the Tawakana Republican guards and so it was kind of a bread and butter mission for the Apaches at the time. So we were out doing that. And we had flown a, a couple of days in a row. And on that particular day, we had gone out to do a day rehearsal and uh, came back to get gas. We were going to shut down, grab some dinner, and then go back out and fly it again that night. Same mission. So the crawl, walk, run philosophy. And uh, so we, we had done that day mission, came back into the FARC. And there was a wood pile that we had been briefed on. It was supposedly in front of one of the refuel points where they had set the FARP up. And so as we're coming into the FARP, the aircraft that was going into point number three called me up and he says, hey, I've got the wood pile. It's no factor. I'm going to shift over to the left into point four and you can just come straight into put to point number three since I see it. And that was kind of what started the chain of events. So we landed at point number three. And at that particular time in December of 93, 
the army had changed the procedures to not shut down the left or correction the right side engine uh, for refueling because they had done a study and the numbers were it was 10 to the minus 23rd that a chance of a refuel apparatus breaking or failing in some way that would would cause a fire and so they had done a study army-wide and said okay you know we're burning up about 800 hours a year during these two-minute cool downs and startups and all the stuff that you guys are doing so just pull it back to idle now the difference between the apache and the cobra refueling was on the apache both cockpits open to the right side which is also where the refueling port is pretty much underneath the uh, the aft pilot's uh, seat and so from day one, we just, everybody stayed in the aircraft and we kept the, the canopies closed. In the Cobra days, the, uh, I believe it was the back seater would stay in and the front seater would get out because one side was on the, uh, the type the refueling side and they were afraid that, you know, we're going to have a guy trapped in there. So they had changed the procedures and then they had changed the other procedure about the engine uh, literally just a few months before my accident. And so I had pulled it back to idle. I told the lieutenant in the front, because he was the acting company commander at the time, I said, let's start taking a few notes about the things that we just saw. You know, we'll debrief it at, at the debrief after dinner, and, and then we'll go out and we'll, you know, we'll make some adjustments for the night. And right about that time, I, I felt a violent vibration on the right side of the cockpit and this overwhelming smell of fuel. And one of the other aircraft called me, and he goes, Skip, you're on fire. Get out, get out, get out. So did you actually start immediately started refueling at this point? So you were yeah, taking we were on fuel? Refueling. Yep, okay. Yeah, we were taking on fuel and we happened to be of the four aircraft, there was a an OH fifty eight Kiowa on point number one, and then Apache's on point two, three, and four, and I was on point number three. And of the four aircraft, I happened to be the first one that was taking fuel. So it was full pressure. It's about three hundred and fifty gallon per minute pressure. And the, uh, the D1 nozzle and the emergency breakaway connector, which I'll come back to in just a second, separated under pressure about two feet from the running in- engine intake. And it went straight into the engine intake, and we went up in this huge ball of flame. And so let me come back to, to the call. So I had this call that I was on fire, and I'm looking around, and there, I couldn't see any fire yet. Everything I could see was was like a real heavy rainstorm in a, in a car with no windshield wipers. And it was all fuel because we're blowing gas out at a tremendous rate. And it was hitting the side of the aircraft being deflected up into the running rotor system and actually being pushed over to the opposite side of the aircraft and hitting the dirt. And probably within a second or two after that, I I saw the flame start on the right-hand wing and it just engulfed everything that I could see. And so my entire world went from normal taking notes to boiling orange and black and just an incredible conflagration that was going on all the way around me instantly. So did the flame come so straight through I, the cabin or did you have some protection in the cabin in that initial couple No, of because because we had the the uh, canopies closed, we were we were in a relative safety bubble. Yep. But I have I have learned since that a flash fire like that goes from ambient temperature to about 1200 degrees Fahrenheit instantly. And that flash fire is extraordinarily hot. And so we we were not going to be able to survive it just by staying in the aircraft. If we had tried to do that, we'd have burned to death in the bird. And so uh, once I saw the fire, I immediately told the lieutenant in the front seat to exit the aircraft. And I started going through aircraft shutdown procedures. 
And uh, it's just the way I was trained. I was taught you never leave an aircraft running. And even though I was hyperventilating and my heart was trying to beat out of his chest, out of my chest, uh, I went ahead and took the time to shut the aircraft down. And I saw Eric Vickery's door open, my front seater, and slam back shut. And, and he made the same mistake that I would make literally a few seconds later. And that was his, he was in such a rush to get out of the aircraft, he forgot to release his shoulder harness. So he opened the door and pushed it up and tried to roll out and his shoulder harness kept him in and it pulled his arm back and, it, and the door slammed down. And so he popped his harness, pushed the door open again, and then rolled out into the flame and ran out. And how high, how high the off the ground four, are you guys? Like in the two seats there? Uh, we're, we're probably about five feet. Uh, the front seat's a little lower, but you still have to go across the Ford Avionics Bay. The back seat is actually higher. It's about three and a half feet higher than the front seat if you just were to measure. Uh, so, you know, from his perspective, it's about five feet to the ground. From my perspective, it's probably seven. And uh, it's a long ways to go ahead first, I can tell you from experience. Um, so anyway, I, I got the aircraft shut down and uh, made the decision to go. And just in the few extra seconds that I had been in the aircraft, when I pushed the canopy and I just popped the handle up and pushed the canopy with my hand, the plastic was already getting soft. I could feel it. And of course the heat was incredible. It was being transferred through it, even though it hadn't, it hadn't actually melted through it yet. And when I opened that door, that fire came in at full, full tilt, hit the, hit the top of the canopy down the left side and right back out. And I was literally being charboiled right in the middle. And the only thing that was exposed was my face. I mean, I had no mix on, I had no mix gloves, my sleeves were down, all that kind of stuff. And it was in the, the, the heat and the pain was intense, but my face, because it was completely unprotected, was it felt like it was melting and it was it was very, very intense. And so I was trying to shield my face from the right. I turned to the left and I'm trying to breathe this but this incredible heat is in there and I, you know, am aware enough to know that superheated gases will kill me if I inhale it as well, not just the heat and the flame and the smoke and everything else. And so I'm trying not to breathe. And trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And so at that point, there was no way I was going out. The door had, had fallen back down and, and shut in the intermediate position, which is about, I don't know, six inches wide. And this fire is raging up through this hole. And I literally could not force myself to, to reach in and grab the handle. And so I popped my harness, stood up, and, uh, and kicked the door mechanism as hard as I could and broke it. And then the door slammed down. Now I'm back in a relative position of safety, but I am intensely hurt. I just didn't realize how bad at the time. And so I'm looking for an easier way out. At this point, I consider going ahead and activating the canopy detonation system, blowing the canopies and going out the left side. And the only reason that I didn't was because when I looked that way, it was no better than it was to the right. There was no tunnel of safety, if you'll think of it that way. Yeah. And I knew that this was going to be terminal in just a few more seconds. And so I just took a deep breath, made my decision opened the door and dove out headfirst uh, to the right. And I remember seeing the Hellfire Seeker flash past my face and I hit the ground, rolled up underneath, uh, got my feet up underneath me and somehow remained oriented on where the right 45 was. And I just ran until I couldn't run anymore. And I stopped and I started gasping for air. And fortunately, it was just outside of the fireball. And so, uh, again, I was in a position of, of safety just by luck, not by anything I was looking at. 
Yikes. <laughs> That's it's crazy. Um, and the the aircraft, I've seen a photo of the aircraft, uh, obviously, when the fire was out, and there's nothing, you know, you, you wouldn't pick it as an Apache, really. There's anything left. No, no, it completely burned to the ground. Um, in fact, you know, once once Eric and I were out of the aircraft, the interesting, there was a lot of interesting things that happened in this in this incident. One was not any single person out there saw both of us come out of the aircraft. Everybody saw one of us or the other one, but nobody saw both of us. And so everybody assumed that one of us was still in the aircraft. And so, you know, the guys on the ground are, are literally trying to run up into this, this huge fireball with little, little tiny handheld fire extinguishers doing everything that they could. But the human animal will not, will not, you know, our survival mechanism inside of us will not allow you to go into that kind of heat. I mean, it was incredible. Nomex flight suits are designed to withstand heat. They're not fireproof, they're fire resistant. And they're designed to withstand uh, failure up until about eight to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. And mine had, had patches that were literally burned away. So we know that the fire was at least that hot. And again, you know, once I came out of this and I've, I've had, you know, 20 plus years to study it now, I've learned a hell of a lot about, you know, flash fire behavior and things. And uh, so I know that it went to about 1200 degrees Fahrenheit initially. Um, and so, you know, once we got away from the aircraft, they got us over to the, to the Ford area refueling point area where the tents and stuff were. One of the pilots in the aircraft to my left, I think it was to my left, uh, had been a paramedic in civilian life. And so they just bounced forward about 20 meters and, and shut down the aircraft to the right. And I may have these backwards, the aircraft, one of the two aircraft that were there took off and immediately climbed to altitude and started yelling mayday, mayday, mayday on the frequencies and trying to get some help out there. The other one bounced forward and they shut down and the paramedic came back because he knew that we were going to have some severe burn injuries. And so when he saw us, the first thing he did was grab a five gallon bucket of, of ice water and poured one over my head and one over Eric's head. And what he was doing was getting the heat off of us because just like, you know, when you cook a steak on the grill, you take it off. The it heat is still continuing to cook the meat. Yeah. And, uh, and because he did that, he probably saved us, uh, quite a long extra stay in the burn center. But as it turned out, uh, Eric had about 17% burns, second and third degree. And I had 42% second and third degree. And so he spent about, Three weeks in the burn center. I was going to say, that's pretty borderline. Too much more than that. And um, that's you can't handle too much more than that percentage of burn, I imagine. Yeah, I think I think the cutoff is 50%. After 50%, you have a very, very low chance of survival. Uh, so I was I was close. I was very close. And I, and I remember I spent about six weeks in the burn center. I was three weeks in the... Um, intensive intensive care where they were they were literally somebody right there with me 24 hours a day and uh it was it was uh, something i hope to never have to go through again i can tell you that look I've, you know i've burned um, my hand before like a you know a 20 cent piece size type thing and it burns burns hurt so you know to, to have that much burn damage uh must have yeah <laughs> to say it hurt <laughs> it must be uh uh underplaying it a huge amount yeah. of well, I can tell you this, there's not enough morphine on the planet when you have that type of an injury. They had me on a, a 24-7 drip. It was about the size of a soda can. 
and put it on and it was a 24 seven drip of morphine. And then I had a button where if the pain got too intense, I could give myself an additional booster three times. I think it was every 30 minutes. And I was pumping that thing like it was, like it was nonstop. And I was just, it was intense, very, very intense pain. And, um, the doctors told me at the time that I'm, I'm one of, you know, anyone that's been through that level of a burn is the only type of person that understands the pain that a woman goes through in childbirth. It's, it's that intense, except it never quits. And I remember, you know, going through the surgeries and the skin graft operations and the debreeding and all of that stuff. And there were times I was just like, I can't deal with this anymore. And, and I begged them for more morphine. And they'd tell me, Mr. Tackett, we have literally given you all that we can give you physically. If we give you any more, we're going to kill you. And I'm like, well, at this point, it's preferable, you know. Yeah. And somehow you just find that you find the strength to, to grit it out for the next minute and the next second. I mean, the next hour and then the next day. And hopefully sometime at the end, you, you get through it, you know. So how long were you in hospital for total? I was in the burn center for six weeks, um, but then I went through intense rehabilitation and it was, um, it was two years and three months before I went back to flying. So very, very long recovery period. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to come back, but I was fortunate because I had, you know, natural fibers underneath the flight suit. I had no synthetics on at all. And the synthetics are what are, are what are dangerous because the, the Nomex itself will stop the flame from coming through but it doesn't protect doesn't protect against heat transfer and any type of synthetics that you're wearing with only a very few exceptions that are specifically made to prevent this will literally uh melt to you and the only way to get that off is to cut the tissue away and so you've got companies now uh dry fire massif um there's three or four of them out there that have invented synthetic fabrics that will not melt and um and that's what is critical that second layer underneath the flight suit where that you have the flight suit you have a trap layer of air you have another layer and then another layer of air and then the skin believe it or not that little thin layer underneath that flight suit makes all the difference in the world and so everywhere that i had that my my underwear my t-shirt i had very very light first degree burns every place else even though it was covered with nomex with the exception of my face which was about 10 and a half percent second and third degree um, was, was second or third degree because of the heat transfer. So it's critical that that second layer be thought about and you have only natural fibers, you know, cotton, wool, something like that, or some of the new fire, fire resistant synthetics that are out there. And me personally, the only thing I've worn since I went back to flying is uh, by a company called Massif out of Oregon, Massive, M-A-S-S-I-F. Uh, they make the best stuff I've ever seen. And I, I was actually a gear tester for him for years and years when I was in Afghanistan. Very, very good stuff. It's not cheap, but I tell people, I said, you know, the insurance that you're paying for with that far, far exceeds any savings that you're going to have if you're laying on the other side of the double glass in the burn center. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking then, so underwear, T-shirt, and then with Nomex over the top, but you're talking having, you know, a, a wool or, or a different material actually underneath the flight suit. Yeah, I mean, and it can be something as thin as a silk T-shirt or a silk pair of long johns. Very, very thin. Not going to cause you to sweat a lot when it's um, when it's really hot outside. And that second layer makes all the difference in the world. And some of the pictures that, that I'm sure you saw in that article that I sent you really, really drives home. The worst burns that I had were, was where I had no second layer. 
even though it was covered with Nomex. Yep. Just had interest, Skip. How, how'd your boots go? My boots actually did good. I was wearing just standard issue army leather boots, and uh, they did fine. Now, the the soles had actually started to separate from the boot uh, because the heat was so intense, but it didn't actually peel back enough to allow the fire to get into my feet. Plus, I was wearing wool socks, even though it was in you know springtime. Uh, and to this day, I, I, I wear nothing but wool socks. I don't care how hot it is. And Skip, for folks who are doing chart operations, so you're thinking, you know, Grand Canyon, New York, places like that where it's, you know, people expect to see a, a white shirt with the, the gold bars on. Is there, you know, is there variations of those shirts that you can get that give some kind of protection or you just think that that's crazy and, and you should just be dressing for, for the uh, worst case anyway? Well, so here's, here's the problem on the civil side. And I actually talked to Masif at length and I talked to their design team and everything about coming up with uh, those types of things, you know, the white short sleeve shirt with the epaulets, but making it out of the material that they make it out of having a white t-shirt underneath, but making it out of the fire resistant material. And sadly, and even though they were willing to do that and they did, they did do some, uh, some basic stuff that I took a look at that was actually pretty cool. There has been zero demand on the civil side for it. And part of the problem that I've experienced in the, 24 years that I've been giving the briefings on this thing now is there's a sense of complacency that, well, that only happens in the combat area. Now the aircraft that I currently fly, uh, one of the aircraft that I currently fly is a, uh, it's called an Airbus H125 now, but everybody knows it in the world is uh, the Ucaril uh, or the AS350 that was built by Aerospatial. Great aircraft. It has one fatal flaw and that is it has a, fuel system that has zero crash tolerance and you've seen a lot of those aircraft go down primarily in the medevac world when they crash they immediately catch on fire you know the one thing i've learned in the in the three accidents that i've gone through two helicopters and one fixed wing is the way that you're sitting when the emergency commences is exactly the way you're sitting when the emergency ends and what i mean by that is you don't have time to go oh i'm on fire now let me roll my sleeves down let me flip up my collar let me put my visor down. You don't have time when you're trying to save your life, you know, and so you have to be prepared for it all the time. Now, fortunately, we've gotten a lot better about turbine engine reliability. And short of a metallurgical failure anymore, the only thing that, that can cause a turbine engine to quit, generally speaking, is deprive it of air, deprive it of fuel. That's it. Once the can is lit, it's going to stay lit. So there's a sense that well, that really is not something I really need to be paying attention to when, in fact, it is a very big threat. I've talked to a lot of different law enforcement agencies uh, around the country, and one of the things that I have stressed to them is that hot open port refueling, yes, you're going to save a few minutes in time, but the dangers in that are so extraordinary that the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps have forbid it uh, on any, any aircraft whether it's on a boat or on land at all, even in combat, they do not do hot open board refueling. And yet almost every law enforcement agency and most of the people flying in the Gulf of Mexico, when they have to land, I mean, when they have to refuel will land on, on the rigs out there. And in some cases they just do hot open port and go. And that's extremely risky because anything can, can light off that vapor cloud, anything. Yes, can you just give a bit more detail there? Because obviously you've got open port refueling and closed port refueling. So can you just talk through those to 
make really clear for people what the difference is? Sure. So closed circuit refueling or closed port is where you have something like a D1 nozzle, which most everybody's familiar with the ones you see on the commercial jets, where they put that big nose, that big nozzle up against the uh, underside of the wing with those two big handles that come off and they screw it into place. And that's how they refuel. In the, in the military, we have the same nozzle, the D1, but it's pressure refueling so that you can literally at 350 gallons a minute, you can refuel the tanks in an Apache in about a minute and 20 seconds. Uh, if you're completely empty. Now, hot open port is what most of the civilian world does if they do it. And that's, you literally open the fuel cap and you put the nozzle in and you pump the gas while the engine's running. And all that vapor and everything is just coming right back out of that tank and going out to wherever it's going to be. And the vapor is what lit off on us. Um, even though the the fuel went into the running engine, that also was an ignition source, by the way. Uh, but anything, a generator field, almost anything can light off that vapor cloud. And it is, it is dangerous. You know, there've been times that it's, uh, it's, it's a combat necessity, you know, because time literally, if you take the extra two minutes, people are going to die. Okay. Well, that's a risk that we're willing to take, but by and large, uh, on a day-to-day basis, I can't, I can't really understand why everybody is, is willing to take that risk to save a couple of minutes worth of time because there's really not anything that you're doing that a couple of minutes is really going to make a big difference in. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously when I we went to Blackhawks, we had closed port, but uh, the Hueys, the first couple of years I was flying, it was all open port and we had a pretty extensive brief and, you know, it'd be a, a, like three-person ground crew in terms of who was doing the refueling. Uh, but, yeah, we always would brief, you know, fire at the pump, fire at the aircraft and different actions on. Uh, for the for the open yeah. port yeah, and you usually had a guy standing there with a fire extinguisher in his hand, yeah. ready to hit it yeah. immediately. Yeah, and someone at the pump, yeah. ready with the hand on the button, ready to, to stop the fuel of the pump as well. So yeah, it was basically a three person. Yeah, grand absolutely. Yeah. Yep. What about what about applicability skip for Avgas? Because uh, obviously we're talking about turbine engines and, and turbine fuel, but you know people are flying Avgas machines. Does all this apply across as well in terms of your recommendations? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, any kind of aviation fuel is is some variety of kerosene, you know, whether it's wide cut kerosene or something less. You know, car fuel of any of any octane, 87, 89, 93, doesn't matter, you know, is is extremely flammable. I mean, you see a lot of people that go to the bird center starting grills with gasoline and then they light that thing off and boom, they get flash burned. So you have to pay attention to it. Now, on the general aviation side, Primarily with the fixed wing, I don't think I've ever seen anybody hot refuel. Maybe maybe a law enforcement or, or a civil air patrol aircraft might if the situation was was that dire. But even on the helicopter side, I don't think I've ever seen anybody hot refuel with a with a recip like a, a Robbie or a, a Schweitzer. Um, and again, there's just you know I I've got a basic philosophy: if nobody's bleeding and nobody's dying, then there's not that much time pressure. And so why are you why are you running the risk just to save a couple extra minutes? We chatted about a week ago just to set this call up and there's something there you said I remember you saying that you know for aviation and the industry we're in we, you know accidents are very very rare but when they happen they are you know severe and catastrophic and that was just after the the machine went in in New York um, in the river and uh, I think since then there's been about three or four other different things there's another aircraft lost off the west coast of Australia. I think there's a Robbie on a ground run has gone over. So, yeah, just these things pull out that you know, we're talking about here and different your experience that 
you know, we that complacency, we can go for so long and not have anything go wrong. Uh, but as you said, it's just when things do go wrong, then they go wrong badly. Well, this particular field that, that you and I are in and the, po- the folks that are going to listen to this, every single time you hit the start button, you pull the start trigger, you do whatever you're going to do, and you, you get the motor running and you take off, you have the same chance of a catastrophic accident every single time. And there's not very many professions where that's true, other than maybe firefighters and, and of course, policemen, you know, first responders. Um, so you have to be prepared for it all the time because, again, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but when it does, it's fast and it's generally catastrophic. All right, Skip. So if we transition from that, and again, that's just a, an incredible you know, story in terms of 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 carrying that message along. Because again, not many people know that story, uh, and because a lot of the coverage of it is quite old now. And I know you said you get out and you speak a lot about it, but it, you would have to go looking hard on the internet uh, to actually find pictures and and the text version of that. So again, the whole point of recording it here is to try and spread that message again and to have that sort of ripple effect. But uh, if we jump now, obviously, you, you know, you finished with a military career and got out. How did you end up flying MI-17s? Well, when I retired from the Army in 2000, I was one of the high-time longbow guys in the world. And the military didn't want us to go very far, so they created some jobs for us here at Fort Hood, still flying the longbow. Uh, where I was teaching advanced combat skills, weapons, and tactics. And there were, there were about two or three of us initially that did that. And then as time grew, then a few more guys came in. And that was right before 9-11. Well, then 9-11 happens, and I'm at Fort Hood as a civilian, still flying the machine and doing the things that we were doing. And I was still the master gunner, as a matter of fact, even as a civilian. And I was extremely pissed. You know, and I'm, I'm, I called, immediately called the Department of the Army, said, I want to come back in. And they said, we can't. The laws did not allow it at the time. Once you were retired, you were retired. And only under certain circumstances could they call you back. And they had not had that go back through the process yet. So that's changed now? So I started. Yes. Yeah. They, uh, they, they put people on what's called a individual ready reserve now, IRR. It didn't exist when I retired uh, at the time. Uh, and they can recall you up to age 65. Yeah. Now, you may not go back into a combat unit. You might go into a a training, you know, go to Fort Rucker, be a platform instructor, something like that, depending on physical condition and so on and so on. But at the time, nothing existed. So I started looking for a way to basically get back into the fight. And the only thing that I could do at the time was continue to train guys that were going over. So we we had this program that we were running here at Fort Hood on the uh, foreign military sales side. I was working very heavily with the Dutch and we had... Um, some other folks come in from Israel and Kuwait and Egypt and a lot of other different countries. And then I got this bright idea one day after talking to some of my buddies that had come back from Iraq that the Ford air controllers and the JTACs, joint, joint terminal air uh, controllers, really were, were keyed in on all fixed wing. They, they knew that fixed wing stuff inside now because that's the way they were trained. But none of them really had focused on helicopters. And so let me tell you the basic difference between attack helicopters in the Army and attack helicopters with everybody else. And I learned this when I went to the Ford Air Controller School for the U.S. Marine Corps in 2005 as a civilian uh, to support that HSKT program that I was talking about earlier. And 
they treat attack helicopters as a fire support element. So therefore, you have to have release of fires from someone that's authorized to do that, i.e. a Ford Air Controller or JTAC, um, something like that. Yep. In the U.S. military, in the Army, we are a fire maneuver element. So I don't have to have clearance from anybody to fire. If I'm on that mission and I deem it a threat, I open up and take it out. So I started looking at ways that we could integrate some of the special operations guys because of my background when I was an Airborne Ranger. I had ties to that. And so I started developing a counterinsurgency program and bringing these guys in. And we did that, and it was a very successful program. Those guys took everything that we taught them and immediately went back to Iraq or Afghanistan and started putting it to use. And I got great feedback. They would come back or they'd email me and say, hey, we need a little bit more on this or that or whatever. The program was running very, very well. But I was still itching to get back in the fight. And finally, in late 2006, I found a way to do it um, through a company that I'm not going to talk about. But uh, they brought me on board because of my my past history and my background and some of the skill sets that I had. And I was transitioned into the Russian MIH slash 17 and uh, immediately went to Afghanistan. So that's how I got into the aircraft and then ultimately ended up flying off and on for about five years in Afghanistan. So where'd you do your training? Pretty much flew initially. Every, uh, it was in house. Okay. I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't go overseas. So in the early part of, of me being in country, I was working for them. In the later part, I was working for Dyncor in uh, Northrop Grumman on a, still on a secret program, but it was a counter narcoterrorism program. And they were sending all their pilots to the Ukraine, getting them trained up there and then coming in. So it's kind of a funny story, but I show up in the, the standardization policy. Well, let me see your training certificate. And I said, I don't have one. And he goes, well, what do you mean you don't have one? He says, here, you got 850 hours in them. I said, I do. <laughs> he goes, well, where did you get your training? And I just pointed over to one of the other ramps at the airfield there. And I said, right over yonder. And he says, okay, well, let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> so everybody kind of knew who it was, but, yep. um, you know, anyway. And that's sort of flying there. Well, again, I won't go into too many details, but can you tell us about the uh, the MI-17? So it's it's a basically an upgraded version of the MI-8? No. Um, in the, the MI-17 is the designation of the export version of the Russian MI-8. There are the, the, you have the MI-8, uh, MTV-1, MTV-5, so on. Those are the Russian military designations. The export version is the 17 series or now the 171 slash 172 series. They're the same aircraft. They come off the same production line. There's no difference. Okay. With the exception that, uh, you know, the Russian ones might have the the bomb wiring, you know, for the bomb racks and those kinds of things where they, they won't sell that outside of the Russian military. So as far as the aircraft itself, the systems are the same. The engines, everything is identical. There's no no difference. Now, on paper, I just had a quick look. So size-wise, it's about a third, again, bigger than a Blackhawk, uh, but it looks like it's you know significantly more in terms of, of troop load. Yeah, it's 83 feet from the tip of the rotor to the tip of the tail rotor. It's got a 69-foot, 9-inch rotor diameter, five-bladed system. It's got two 2,200-shaft horsepower engines and a max gross weight of 28,660 pounds. And it's the only aircraft that I've ever flown. At, and I used to demonstrate this to guys when they come into the uh, airport at Kabul. We were sitting at just under 23,000 pounds empty because we were training. And uh, I would pull one engine back to idle and pick it up to a hover. 
Yep. And, and everybody's like, I can't even imagine that this is happening. I said, well, it really is. The aircraft has a tremendous amount of power. And so that was the main reason that we were using it over there was because the engines that were in the ones that we had were the engines that the Russians built for Afghanistan when they were there for 10 years. So that aircraft was literally built for that altitude. And other than the U.S. Army Chinooks, no one else was carrying anything close to the load that we were carrying at the altitudes that we were flying. Did you have a flight engineer on board? Is it a three-person crew? No, no. Unlike the the Russians and most of the European countries, the Czechs, everybody else that flies them, they all have that flight engineer. We transitioned to just a two two person crew, a pilot and a co pilot. And uh, the reason was that we didn't need that third person. And I hate to say it this way because I'm probably going to offend some flight engineers someplace, but we didn't need them getting in the way of what we were doing. The other thing you have to remember is that in the Russian system, uh, they're always worried about guys trying to defect pilots yeah, specifically and they've had a few famous ones you know and so the uh the aircraft was designed that it was very very difficult to start from the left seat if no one else was in the aircraft and the flight engineer generally did that because there were switches above the pilot's head switches above the co-pilot's head and then switches on the electrical panel on the far right side of the aircraft and uh, and i did it one time just to prove to myself that i could do it but i had to literally stand up and hold the cyclic and reach all the way across the cockpit to flip the electrical switches up. I need so on, so on. Right. Uh, so it's uh, anyway, we found it much more, at least for the missions that we were flying, it lent itself much easier to, to have just a pilot and a co-pilot. And what that did is that freed up that flight engineer seat to where the ground task force commander or someone else that was helping control the mission could actually sit there and talk to the two pilots and, and, you know, do whatever they needed to do tactically. So it worked out very well for us. It's a unique uh, cockpit layout because you've got kind of like two individual pilot stations and then a big piece of uh, perspex in the middle. Well, first of all, it's enormous. (laughs) I mean, it is massive, the amount of space that you have in there. Uh, I don't even think a Chinook cockpit is as big as an MI-17, size-wise, you know. so, yeah, it's uh, you got a lot of space, which, you know, allowed us a lot of room to bring along thermoses and some of the other things that we brought for the incredibly long flights that we flew. But I found it to be a very, very good aircraft. I really had to take back a lot of the preconceptions and things that I had heard about it once I actually started flying it. And as I told you uh, about a week ago when we spoke, there are five specific missions that that aircraft brought me home that I don't think a Western-built bird would have. And I dearly love the Apache and the Blackhawk and the Chinook, and I've got a lot of experience doing a lot of things with all those, and they're fantastic aircraft. But we had some damage that I just don't think we could have flown back with one of ours, and these things are built to take it. They're just very simple aircraft with incredible shock absorbing landing systems. You know, they're, they're just built to survive. So good aircraft. Yeah, that'd be a very different experience. So, again, I think I'm just trying to find the quick figures I've – I noted down here, but yes, this is 12,000 produced and it's the uh, third most common operational military aircraft in the world. So, uh, you know, again, here in Australia, it's just you don't see them at all. I think it's a couple in Papua New Guinea and maybe one or two in Timor, but uh, we just don't see that in that type here. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the same here. There's a few in the U.S. They're they're flown under experimental category only, but... uh, you know, there are a few quirks that the aircraft has that will kill you in a heartbeat. It's got the tail rotor is literally not strong enough for the amount of power that that aircraft produces. 
So it's a little bit quirky on the winds uh, and a few other things. But by and large, it's a it's a really good aircraft. And and the Russians have used it to great effect. You know what I mean? The thing was a champ in Siberia because it's the tolerances for the fuel and the things that that we have developed on our side on the West. You know, we try to squeak every hour out of every engine that we build and so on and so on. And the Russians basically do about 1,500 hours and then toss it away and put a new motor in. You know, and it took me a little while to figure out why they do that. And you have to remember, first of all, it's a communist-based society. There's a guy that works in a motor factory, and that's his job. You know, and if, you, if, you're, not, if you're building engines that last like ours do, pretty uh, soon okay. he doesn't have much of a job anymore, you know. And, and I really had to get into the, to the mindset of, of the Russian society. And that's, that's part of it. Now, I don't know how big a part of it is, but that, that has something to do with it, and it's just different than the way that we think. And for the vast majority of the systems that I had to learn, there's, they're not better, they're not worse, they're just different. Yep. You know, they're not the way we would have done it, obviously, but it works, and it works well. Were they metric cockpits? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I first had to figure out kilograms of fluid per centimeter squared and what that meant, it's like, <laughs> uh, can we just put a like a color line on the gauge which actually they do have instead of using uh, red yellow and green like we do they use um, blue uh, green blue and red i think so uh, anyhow it's yeah it was all different you know learning to, to fly in meters per second on the uh um the you know, the vsi and yeah. things like that yeah it was you know and, and basically i just learned well if you just multiply it times two Five meters per second is, you know, a thousand feet per minute. So made it a little easier to handle. And then quickly, you won't spend too much time on it, but uh, you've also got a nickname there as the, the Hog Slayer as well through GNT Outfitters. And, and again, that's a, you know, a very different business when you think of that website and you go to it and uh, and then see what the business actually is. So I was just fully expecting a, you know, a menswear uh, country outdoor clothing store. Uh, but you want to talk about the, uh, the flying you do there? Sure. So one of the uh, invasive species that we have specifically in the state of Texas, but uh, it's, it's branched over into Oklahoma, Louisiana, uh, a few other places, is uh, wild hogs. They were brought in by the Spaniards and the, and the settlers in the early days as a food source. And of course, animals escape and then they turn feral. And these things are prolific breeders. And so of the six million estimated hogs in the United States, they estimate that about three to four million of them are in the state of Texas alone. And they do a tremendous amount of damage every year, about $50 million worth of damage to crops and and other livestock and things like that. And so Texas is one of the very few states where they have allowed us to start feral hog eradication programs using helicopters. And so we use helicopters and gunners to go out and hunt these things from the air. And we're still not making a dent. I mean, we have, we've been told by the wildlife biologists, we have to pretty much kill 75% of everything that we see just to keep them in check. And we don't kill anything close to that, even with the helicopters. And so we have developed a business with, with my outfitter, GNT Outfitters, and we do feral hog eradication. And uh, I can tell you, it's not only is it a hell of a lot of fun, it is something that most people, to include most special operations folks, have never done. And that's to shoot at a, at a moving target from a moving helicopter. And uh, everybody comes back with a huge grin. And, uh, you know, we do make a big difference. We have watched literally over the last few years, 
fields that were devastated by hogs two years ago, almost having no damage now, but it, it requires constant, constant hunting because they breed every three months, three weeks, and three days. The females start breeding when they're four months old, and they every three months, three weeks, and three days, they have another litter. I don't know what else yeah. to call it. And they can have up to 13 pigs. So they've told us for every female that we miss, the, by the next year, there's about 40 to 50 replacement pigs. And the photos, like when that two, you know, I'm guessing you use the 206 mainly for it, but when he takes off in some of those shots, there's, there's more firepower on that uh, that jet ranger than uh, many many militaries would field in a, in different helicopter types. Yeah, yeah, we always fly with three three guns. So my safety, uh, my outfitter is also a safety, but he also carries a weapon because, again, we're out here to shoot the pigs, not shoot at the pigs. And, you know, some of the folks can shoot pretty well. A lot of them can't not their fault it's not something they do all the time but we always carry three weapons and so we have a pretty good success rate on average i think we probably get 15 to 20 percent of what we see and it's only because in this particular part of the state uh, unlike down south where they have these open rice fields where you see a lot of the the videos from down there because they're the pigs are just running across these open fields and open fields and open fields and here we've got huge open fields, but we also have a lot of scrub oak and mesquite and stuff. And so once they get into that, especially in the summer when the leaves are up, it's very difficult to find them. So we have to try to herd them out into the open areas or catch them in the open areas. And we've gotten very good at it. Um, I have no idea off the top of my head how many hundreds and hundreds of hogs we've shot, but it's quite a few because we're required to track it uh, and report it back to the state. So it's a, it's a very tightly managed program. You have to go through some pretty pretty good um, class work, I guess, to you know to get the things that you have to do. And then, in particular, for our operation, every flight we spend a minimum of an hour and a half in training for the folks that are going to go shoot. So we give them academics, we watch videos, we do weapons drills. I put them in the aircraft. And you mentioned the uh, the aircraft that crashed in New York. We use a harness system and quick releases, but ours is specifically designed for aircraft. It's TSO'd by the FAA. The personal retention lanyards that we use are the same ones that special operations forces use. They're bomb-proof, but they're very easy to unhook. We go through emergency egress drills and so on. And so we we mitigate the risk as much as possible to get out and do the job that we're doing. And it is it's a lot of fun to fly. It's a lot of fun to uh, to watch the folks uh, do what they're doing. But you have to tightly control it. And, uh, and I watch it very, very closely as far as uh, muzzle orientation and, and when I allow them to shoot and when I shut it down. Yeah, because I was going to ask about those operational things because, again, just thinking, you know, for a military operation to go out and do that, there would be a, a lot of lead-up training. And I'm not sure what minimum, minimum qualifications is something just walk off the street and go do that. But, yeah, I was going to ask about all those things in terms of, you know, shooting rotor blades and having – you know, people aren't familiar with helicopters sitting on the sides with their feet out on, on the on the step and things like that. There's a, it, it, like I'm just seeing from a military point of view, there would be a, a lot of lead up training for that. Uh, even just down to well, the, the brass, even just brass in, in the aircraft in terms of flight controls. So yeah, I'm just interested in well, those sorts of controls. Yeah, there is a lot that goes into it. Fortunately, you've heard a lot about my background. So I've done a lot of special operations stuff. I was a master gunner. I was an airborne ranger. I used to shoot out of them and so on. And all of that experience I've, I've put back into this. So we do do a very extensive training program. We've never had a blade shot. We've never had a skid shot. We've never had a person shoot themselves in the foot, which is quite honestly the biggest concern. 
And it's because we, we spend a lot of time talking about it before we actually do it. And then as we, as we progress through the flight and I keep it very tightly controlled initially. And then as I see how they're doing, I will either, you know, loosen it up just a little bit or, or maintain the tight controls, but it all comes down to myself and the safety from GNT outfitters controlling the firing, the positioning, you know, we teach them when, when the angles are too extreme, whether it's in the vertical or the horizontal, and we watch it very, very closely. And so we've had a very good success rate with it. We've never had an incident in, in over two years. Doesn't mean that we can't. But again, uh, I, I am not an operator that someone shows up, you, you bring your M16 or, you know, AR-15 or whatever you've got. And I say, there's the helicopter, there's your belt, get in, let's go. That's just not how we operate. No, it looks like there's like yeah a lot that goes into it, and uh, and Skip, if you didn't have enough other hats on, you're also involved in this uh, drone company, which is amazing. I have no idea how you fit all this in, but uh, yeah, you want to just quickly tell us about that, and then we might uh, we might finish up. Well, there's there's four hours between midnight and zero four that I found <laughs> I can fill up. <laughs> I used to use it for sleep. Now I just run hard. Yeah, so I started a commercial drone company with with three friends of mine from the military. Uh, two other pilots and a, and a buddy of mine that was actually a Bradley Master Gunner. And we started this about two and a half years ago, and we wanted to get in on the ground floor of what I think is the next quantum shift in aviation worldwide. And I, I don't think anybody would disagree at this point that drones are here to stay in whatever shape, form they are. Now, whether they're going to completely replace manned aircraft in our lifetime, I don't think so. Because you're going to have to get really, really foolproof with a lot of different systems to make sure that something's never going to fail. Uh, but having said that, uh, we started with a quadcopter. It's built by a company out of Canada called Arion. And uh, as you might imagine, it had military pedigree. The special operations used to use it over there. And that's the system that I wanted because it's, it's a semi-autonomous flyer. It doesn't use joysticks. Everything is controlled by a touch pin on a tough pad. And the machine essentially flies itself. The thing that I really, really liked about it was two things. Number one, Arion is to quadcopters what Boeing is to Apaches. They're the world leader in quadcopters, and they are pushing the envelope every day on the things that they do. And so it's a very, very good machine. It's a very highly integrated machine. The second thing that I liked about it was just like I described on the Apache, where the machine itself is easy to fly, this one is autonomous. I tell it where to go, what altitude, what pattern to fly. I can always manually override that, of course. But the machine goes, and then I just I just focus on the payload. And so we're not having to have two or three guys to operate multiple systems. The pilot is also the payload operator. Everything is, uh, is encrypted, uses AES-256 encryption for the data link and AES-256 encryption for the command link. Uh, again, military-derived safety measures. So I don't have to worry about somebody hacking into it, stealing the data, so on and so on. And so uh, we are right now, as we speak, undergoing a national accreditation program through Texas A&M University. Once we get this in about a month, that's going to put us up with the big boys. And what everybody has found out from the major corporate perspective, and I'm talking about energy companies like ExxonMobil and Valero, GE, and things like this, is that the, the implementation of, of the FAR 107 in, in the United States was not very well done. And so it, it takes a little bit to get to get your remote pilot license. But in the early days, when we had the FAA 333 exemption, you had to be a pilot. You had to have a private pilot or better license in an aircraft before you could even get a remote pilot license. 
and they did away with that. So what happened was there was this this tsunami of people that went out and bought, you know, various drones and manufacturers are relevant at this point and, and got some very basic skills and then went it out and started causing problems, not because they were being vindictive, but because they really didn't have a lot of training in national airspace and how the aviation business works and how we deconflict, you know, between airplanes and helicopters and all the things that you and I take for granted because we do it as a, as a profession. And so what has happened is the, the, the major companies that want uh, pipeline inspections and refinery inspections and turbine wind uh, equipment inspections are, are trying to find some organization that has vetted somebody and said, okay, these guys are not those guys. These guys are wired tight. They have uh, safety management system processes in place. They use checklists. They use mission briefings. They, all the things that, that you would expect. And so that's what we're undergoing now because that's the work that we want to get into. But it has been a very interesting road, and it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. They're really cool machines, and I love all things aviation. So to yep. me, it was a natural fit. Yeah, especially coming from the you know those hunter killer teams, and then transferring that through uh, with your different backgrounds and skill sets, and obviously the connections there that you've built up. So. Yeah, definitely. I wish you the best with that. And it's definitely, you know, again, looking at the pictures of that, it's a, a slightly different looking drone in terms of the setup goes. And it's all, as you said, it looks like it's it's all geared around the, the, the top end serious business rather than it is, it is. I mean, your beach photos. Yeah, some of the cameras that we have are $25,000, just the cameras. Uh, I've got a second gen FLIR that's got image auto track that is very, very similar to the TADS bucket that was on the Apache. It's amazing to see the miniaturization of things that are coming along with it, but it's exciting to be on the on the forward edge of it, and uh, and I really like seeing where it's going. Now there's obviously growing pains, and we've gone through a lot of growing pains as an as an industry, and unfortunately, uh, everybody not everybody a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of people have gotten a really bad taste in their mouth because they've had bad experiences, and when you first say drone, two things immediately come to mind: the near misses with the the civil aviation industry on the commercial side with the, the airliners. And the next thing everybody thinks of is, is Jeff Bezos and Amazon going to drop a box off on my front door or Chipotle is going to deliver a burrito. And, and people just aren't real comfortable with that yet. Yep. And so, you know, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to make everybody understand that's not what we do. That's not how we operate. That's why we, we jumped into this national accreditation program and the best, the best analogy I can give you, it's, it's going to be like getting a scan from underwriter's laboratory on an electrical piece of equipment. It has been tested and tested and checked and proved. And yes, this is good. Boom. That's what's going to happen that's on the drone site. Brilliant. All right, Skip, I think we've, uh, we're have probably pushing the time there and, and Skype is just starting to get a little bit choppy there too. So we might wrap up and, and uh, look, a big thank you from from all the listeners for joining us today and, and sharing your stories, especially about the, obviously the, the, uh, the refueling fire and and the feedback about the you know the difference the clothing makes uh, when you've got it and and definitely your your recovery process and the painful uh, process that was is a, a pretty good uh, jab for people to go back and and look at what they wore so uh, look thank you very much yeah for, it's, for it's sharing my some pleasure time. I, uh, yeah I, I talk about it to anybody that wants to listen uh, yes the accident happened 24 years ago but you know what there's been a lot more since then. And uh, I can tell you this in, in one short sentence, a burn injury is something to be avoided at all costs. I don't care how minor it is. 
it is a devastating injury. And when you start having a major burn injury due to fuel and things like that, it's something that you may not survive, but it will definitely change your life for the rest of your life. I mean, 37% of me can't sweat anymore. And I live in central Texas. It gets really hot. So I you know, compensate. I drink a lot of water and so on. But that changed the physiology of my, of my body and things that I have to do now that 26 years ago I didn't have to mess with. You know, so. Thanks. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. There is not enough morphine in the world for that pain. Those words of Skip's paint a pretty good picture of what the consequences are of being caught in an aircraft fire. On the blog post for this episode, there are photos of the Apache wreck, or you know what was left of it after the fire. And again, if you've got a strong stomach, there's also photos there of Skip's burn damage shortly after the accident, if you really want to scare yourself. There are a few photos there of Skip's other flying experiences and videos of Skip talking about fire retardant uh, or resistant clothing and another video there of the aerial gunnery flights that he does in Texas through G&T Outfitters. If you do have any questions for Skip, you can leave them on the uh, blog post comments and uh, I'll make sure that they get to Skip and we'll see if we can get some answers back. Now, in the interview, you heard Skip mention that Massive Clothing had looked at the idea of a fire-resistant charter pilot white shirt. If you know of anywhere that might sell something similar, can you please leave the information on the blog post comments for this episode or alternatively send me an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com if I can track something down I'll share it with you and other listeners in future episodes. Look, while you're on the website at rotarywingshow.com you can download the list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew which will also put you on the, the mailing list for the show. World Helicopter Day is the third Sunday in August. So this will be the fourth year of the event. And we're calling now for open days and events to start listing on the main website so they can be promoted worldwide. So there's some great PR value there for your organization or company if you can get those events in early. And all the details are over at worldhelicopterday.com. I just really encourage you to check it out and share it with a person in your company or organization that would be involved in running events or marketing or share it with your local flying school. So let's put on a, a big worldwide party again this year to celebrate these machines that we fly. If you learned something today and feel like you would like to support the show by throwing a few dollars towards the, the operating costs, you can do that via rotarywingshow.com forward slash support or on the Patreon website to search for the, the, uh, the podcast. It definitely helps me to uh, keep my wife happy, uh, number one especially, and also try and push out some you know, previews and other materials to the supporters there as a, a special thank you. Honourable and a very grateful mentions go to Heath, Daniel, Peter, Tony, Kevin, Jason, Rendell, John, Mick and Michael for your support. So thanks very much. That's it for today and I'll catch you in the next episode. But in, in the meantime, don't forget the, the, I guess the takeaway lesson and the action from this episode, which is to go and check your flying gear and see what material it's made from and write down to your, your jocks and your socks.